Hey everyone, welcome back to Latter-day Takes. On today's episode, I've got a special guest who is joining me, um, Siale Charlie, that's his uh, American name, uh, Longi. Uh, Siale uh, is a friend of mine from a random occurrence when we both were attending a multicultural program at BYU. Yes, I got invited to attend a multicultural program at BYU. It was this uh, summer thing. It was one week. It was before our senior year in high school. And it was basically like show off BYU to us and encourage us to apply there and everything. But anyway, um, good friend of mine. He had, uh, we, we, we hadn't, you know, stayed in touch a whole lot, but we kind of kept tabs on each other. Uh, Siale suffered a crazy accident that we get into a little later in the podcast that I actually didn't really know what had happened. I just know that he had uh, suffered from a major leg injury and, uh, to the point where he actually decided to kind of shoot for the Paralympics. So we get into that and we talk about kind of his goals in that regard anyway. But before we get into the episode, I did want to actually talk a little bit about conference weekend because I do love conference weekend. It is one of my favorite weekends out of the year. I hope everybody had a good conference weekend. Um, more specifically, I hope that the messages that you heard were, you know, something that really resonated. One theme for me seemed like love. And I don't want to get into this too much right now because I actually want to preserve this maybe for a later episode, but it seemed like the biggest theme was that we need to be more loving. And that one resonated quite a bit because I feel like I get caught up in it. I mean, I, I talk about not getting caught up in the fight, right? When we love the fight more than actually love what we're fighting for more, then we start to lose sight of what really we're actually standing up for and defending. So there's it's some nuance behind that, right? But it was it was definitely eye-opening again, or at least a reminder, I should say, that a lot of times I get caught up in the fight. And I need to remind myself that what am I fighting for, first of all, foremost? And then from there, what's the best way to stand up and defend my beliefs? And you know what? Sometimes I don't practice that the best. And that's something I've been reflecting on a little bit this weekend and will continue to reflect on. And hopefully I dive a little bit more into as the podcast moves forward. Anyway, hope you all are well. Hope you had a great weekend and hope you're gearing up for a great week. Love you all. And I'll see you probably Thursday. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the yeah. best cult. Have you ever, under the influence of alcohol, questioned the teachings of the Mormon church? Well, these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. <laughs> Everybody's so nice in Utah. They're all Mormon, right? Yeah. So they're not most drinking. Of it, most of it. And they're like not cussing. They're like, Slovis, you stink. <laughs> I'm afraid it was the Mormons. Yes, yes the, Mormons the Mormons were the correct answer. Because God loves Mormons and he wants some more. Shout out to the Latter day Saints. All right, joining me on the podcast today is an old friend, which I actually want to I want to quiz him to see when he if he remembers when we met. Uh, Siale, did I say that right? Siale, yeah. Longi, isn't it Longi? That's right. Langi. Longi. Longi, right? Yeah, Longi. Yeah. Which I actually didn't know that until I until Harvey Longi played at uh, played at BYU as linebacker. You know, transfer from the U. Yeah, Great yeah, running yeah. back at Bingham High School. Was he is he related to you at all? Um, I believe he and my dad are first cousins. Oh, nice. Um, Siale, but I'm, I met you when you were Charlie. That's what you were going by, at least at the time. Uh-huh. Do you remember when That's that right. was? Yeah, we were, uh, we, we met as, um, scholars at a yeah. summer of yeah. academic refinement. 
Just a couple of multicultural scholars. <laughs> just a couple of multicultural scholars. Taking, taking the ACT in, in yeah. like July. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that I think that's, that's like where a, we met. That is exactly our, uh, right. The, the exactly summer, right. the summer after our junior year in high school. Yeah, it would have been two thousand four. Uh, yeah. BYU SOAR program. Yep. SOAR. Yeah, and like that—that that sounds like honestly, that sounds like a weird dream. <laughs> oh yeah, that was that was. <laughs> but a couple of multicultural. Me, the blue-eyed white boy with had much lighter hair back then. My hair's actually gotten darker since high school, but um, still don't look like an ethnic child in any sense but whatever here i am quarter mexican holler dude that's how it was they accept you guys accept me right into your fold and i loved it oh yeah no i oh still you, you still look you still look mexican to me i hey i appreciate that thanks man if you, if you came to soar you were stamped for for, etern- <laughs> for eternity i'm not going to see you as anything else that's right nor should you nor should you ever <laughs> i appreciate that brother um Charlie, Siale, I'm going to probably use both interchangeably because you've all oh, no, Charlie since I've known you, but um, I think Siale is a dope name anyway. So um, let's get going with this because the, fir- the first thing I wanted to talk to you about was something that I find is very unique to what you do. And actually, I don't know the details of what led you to this, believe it or not. Um, we've been friends, social media, like we've seen each other for a while pretty consistently, but you know, we've known each other since 2004 and then we went to BYU at the same time and we'd run into each other every now and then, but, uh, we never really like hung out, I guess, but we've always been yeah, very yeah. friendly. We've always been on great, had a great relationship and somewhere in there, you had a big accident that led to you. Did you lose your ability to walk at one point? Um, I briefly, I, I lost my ability to walk. And then, uh, the initial prognosis was that um, you know, I would, I would never be able to walk, um, unassisted. So like, uh, with crutches or a walker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, not only did you conquer that, but you've thrived and we'll get to that in a little bit, but what, what happened? Take us through the accident. What, what took place there? Yeah. So I, I think, um, I think we, last time we ran into each other was either 2009 or maybe 2010, um, you had, uh, outside, outside of the Wilk or something. Oh yeah. There was, oh, yeah. I remember the time outside the Wilk because I was in a class that the teacher, it was a sociology class and he shared a clip from NPR that was interviewing missionaries on the street in New York city. And they, oh, that was, they're, was, asking, uh, they're asking missionaries what their name was. And you're like, Oh, I'm elder Lange. And I was like, that's Charlie. I was like, that's gotta be Charlie. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So there were, two things on my mission where something like that happened. So no I way. did an, epi- an episode of tough room with NPR. Um, yeah. What was that Ira glass show called? Uh, I can't remember. Might, might just be the Ira glass show for, for all I remember, but American I something. I, I don't remember exactly what it was. Yeah. But yeah, but, I, um, I recounted that to you. I was like, dude, I heard you in my class the other day and you're like, Oh yeah, that was one time outside the Wilk. I remember. Yeah. They, they followed, uh, they followed, my greenie and I for a day in Manhattan to Mm -hmm. the episode was called tough room. And it was, uh, you know, kind of like a comedian, um, kind of difficult jobs that people have. And they followed us because 
you know, we were turned down so many times mm-hmm. <laughs> as yeah. we were contacting. But they got a kick out of that. That's funny. Yeah. And then, um, and then I remember running into you in the softball fields. That's right. That's right. I, remember I can't remember that. if that was before or after, but yeah, I met your wife there too. And yeah. since then you have how many kids? We have uh, a three-year-old and then my wife is due next week. Hey, congratulations, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Um, so take us through this. Cause I don't, I don't really remember seeing much on this accident, but. Yeah. So, um, to the, uh, fall of 2011, um, I was working in Provo at the time, but I was headed to the airport for work. Um, it was like the first day where, you know, things had started to freeze a little bit. It was like a, a little, a little bit of rain, a little bit of snow, but I was having vehicle problems close to, um, on I-15, um, close to where the, the minor league ball field, I don't remember, um, Salt Lake Bees? Where the Salt Lake Bees play. It's about 13th South, I think. Yeah, between 21 and 13. Okay. So I, I uh, was on the shoulder of the freeway. Um, I had exited my vehicle, kind of checking to see what was going on with, with, with my car. And um, a driver who had uh, not been paying attention um, drove onto the shoulder of the freeway and hit me outside of my car at 75 miles per hour and uh, crushed me into my car. No way. Yeah. So I have no idea, man. Yeah. So that was, that was the the fall of uh, 2011 when when that happened. Oh my goodness. And so what, what happened? Like, does that, what you get hit and does this driver pull over? Do other people pull over? Like what, what goes on there? Yeah. Driver pulls over uh, to render aid. Uh, A few other people pull over. I didn't, I didn't lose consciousness. Oh, that um, actually makes things worse. I feel like so. I I uh, I laid there, um, you know, looked for my phone, tried to call my wife, um, you know, who wasn't able to pick up. Um, called my dad, uh, you know, told him that I was in an accident. Um, you know, don't remember too much of the conversation, and then um, you know, eventually EMS came and uh, took me to IMC, the hospital in Murray, and so from uh the event the accident i had um bleeding in the brain i broke uh, c1 c2 and c3 um i broke um my lower Is that back lower, the lower part so c, c c1 c2 and c3 are your your three higher ones okay um so it's it's also called a, a hangman's fracture so okay, like gotcha um yeah. You know, when when you're hung with a noose, yeah. Um, yeah. the noose is made to to, yeah. Yeah, to to break your neck yeah. there. Um, I shattered my pelvis and then, you know, basically broke everything from um, my waist down. And so the, within the first within the first three, four months of my accident, um, I had 23 surgeries, um, about nine of them. Um, you know, went on for about, um, you know, longer than 15 hours. I, I was on the, the table for multiple hours that multiple surgeries that, you know, went over, um, you know, 15, 16, 17 hours. Um, and then 
from recovering from the ICU. I was in like a skilled nursing, um, like a nursing home <laughs> for, for nine months. Uh, and so, you know, from that accident, I was um, hospitalized about a, about a year. Oh my goodness. And so going back to the actual accident, when it happened, like, this is going to sound like a stupid question probably, but like legitimately, how much pain were you in when that happened? Or could you just not feel anything? I, I, I just couldn't feel anything at the time. I think with the, uh, everything happened so quickly and, uh, the adrenaline, um, yeah, I, I just don't remember the pain. I remember how severe it was. Cause I, you know, tried to, to get up, um, you know, I, I, I remember them cutting all my clothes off of me and putting me into the ambulance. Uh, you know, so I knew, you know, something um, was bad, but they didn't realize how um, how bad it was until I had gone in and, and I... Um, well, the started... bleeding in the brain sounds like very, very serious. Yeah, so they I, they didn't realize how serious it was until they um, I, I was taken in and I was given a CAT scan, um, doing all my scans um, where I... Uh, had flatlined on the table, no and then way. they saw they they saw that um, because I because I was conscious and I was talking to them, I was able to answer their questions. Um, you know, cognitively they were able to say, um, you know, he meets these check marks. But it wasn't until they were able to see the scan and see the, I guess, the bleeding and the hemorrhaging, um, you know, that they could you know really eventually contact my wife and say. You know, this is this is how serious this accident was. So it wasn't it wasn't cra- it's not crazy to think like legitimately like your your life was on the line throughout this process. Like you could have died at any point within the oh, yeah. first oh, yeah. day or so. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Yeah, from from different things. Um, from I lost a lot of blood from uh, my right leg. Um, I don't have a calf muscle on my right leg. Um, all of that was kind of taken from the accident and the rest of it was removed, you know, during surgery. Um, initially I was taken in to amputate my leg, but they, uh, were able to salvage the leg, uh, taking a vein out of my left arm and kind of weaving it, you know, threading it through my legs to restore that blood flow. And so... Yeah, so I, eventually, eventually, I will most likely have it amputated, um, you know. But the artery bypass, the artery graft, you know, kind of gives me a little bit more time to rehab it and see, you know, how much more function I can gain from it before, um, you know, before that happens. Because it makes a big difference, you know, when you're talking about amputation. There's a big difference between having an amputation below your knee and above your knee. Mm-hmm. Um, the function is just uh, a lot different. Quality of life is is a lot different. Tell me about that a little bit. I mean, that seems like it makes sense, but I'm not totally sure why. Yeah, so if you, if you have um, the ability to, to bend your knee, if you have your joint, mm-hmm. and that amputation is below that, you know, when you walk, you can use your knee to swing your leg through. Um, uh, and so and so you can get a prosthetic. And as you walk, your gait, um, you know, you can have a normal gait. Um, you know, you can, um, you know, 
walk normally and in most cases with a below the knee amputation but when the knee is um when the, the amputation, amputation's above the knee it's, it's above a the knee, hip it's a lot more hip so you have a like a your hip kind of has to swing out mm-hmm. as you walk um you know because you can't articulate that that knee you can't pick up your knee as you walk so you kind of have to swing it through it makes a lot of sense and so yeah. is that a, where would you have to amputate once if you get to that point so it, initially um when they when they took me in they took me in initially to get it amputated um but the orthopedic trauma surgeon uh who was on call that day you know he he kept trying to put it on hold um you know they were going to go above the knee um you know because there was i had dislocated my knee in the accident um everything was just you know broken from from my waist down and so they were just trying to you know make sure that i i survive and they're you know minimize any of the any of the damage mm-hmm. but um but because they were able to kind of figure that out and um salvage the limb instead of amputate it you know it kind of gives me a little bit more time to um and it gives them you know a surgeon who has an has an option to um you know do a traumatic surgery um you know within a couple hours of an accident is going to have a you know a different set set of circumstances and pressure than someone who's able i'm able to walk in and talk to and he's able to see what i can do um i mean if that makes sense oh yeah for sure yeah and i had no idea about any of this that's it's pretty crazy stuff okay so you're finally through all the surgeries that first year you're not walking at this point at least unassisted yeah so i when i went back to finish school I uh, was on campus. I had uh, had worked my way up to forearm crutches. Um, so finishing finishing school, I used uh, forearm crutches, and then eventually was able to use just a cane to get around campus. And these are already improvements that they're sitting here thinking like this is actually very promising for you in the long run. Yeah, yeah. So that that was um, you know at that time. For sure, I've I improved uh, a lot. You know, made more improvements than they they had initially thought. So, how long did it take for you to become unassisted? Well, I'm 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 not fully unassisted. I wear I, I braces. See you wear braces, but yeah, I mean, come on, I'm not. I mean, now I'm not. <laughs> I'm not the guy that has any expert to say like, oh, well, then basically, yeah, yeah. You are. I mean. You wearing braces? You're not wearing anything. You're not leaning up against anything. Like it's basically Correct. that's pretty freaking unassisted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, minimal assistance for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I have I have the AFOs on both legs, um, ankle foot orth- orthotics. Um, so they go run up all the way just under my knee where I strap on. Um, you know, but for the most part, that that's all I need. Um, mm. And I and I, I wear them when I go to work. But if I'm just hanging around the house, I I don't have to use them. I just kind of just shuffle around or limp around to get yeah. all my things done. So at what point were you thinking like, I don't know, maybe I'll get it, look into the Paralympics and see what I can do? So um, 
part of it was the 2012 the London Olympics were that uh, were taking place the year that I was in uh, you know skilled nursing in the nursing facility and so you know I was 23 at the time Mm -hmm. 23 or 24 at the time and you know in this in this nursing place where everyone is just you know a lot older than I am Um, but I would just like hang out in rehab um, hang out in physical therapy, using their bikes, using their weights. And, uh, they had this big TV and I would watch, uh, you know, uh, watch the Olympics. And, um, you know, as I was, you know, sitting there curling my five pound weights, um, you know, I started to think, I was like, oh, I, I was like, I, was, I could probably work up to a point where I could do that. And so in the Paralympics, um, you know, you can compete ambulatory or you can compete um, seated. What does that and mean? So, so uh, there are there's just, there's just a ton of um, different nuances with the Paralympics. But so to make things fair um, within the Paralympics, um, people are classified to ensure that you're competing with like abilities. So, like, I would never compete against. Um, I, I would never compete against someone who has cerebral palsy, right? Mm, or I would never yeah. compete against, um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't compete in powerlifting against, you know, someone who has one arm. Um, right. and so, yeah. and so that's, and so that's what they do. They create classifications to, um, you know, to ensure that you're competing with a group with like abilities. And so, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's kind of like weight classes in a sense, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, a, a person who's throwing the discus standing, you know, has a lot more advantages than someone who's wheelchair. throwing yeah, throwing the discus in a wheelchair. So um, and, and even within the, the wheelchair. And uh, I mean, I, I, I reached out to you uh, after I listened to, uh, I think it was Jill Joe Christensen. Patton, yeah, sorry. Uh, Christensen's her maiden name. That's how I know her. Yeah, Jill Patton. Yeah. Yeah. Austin, and do you I, know and Austin I, at all? I don't I don't know Austin, but I um follow him on Instagram now. Nice. And uh he I, I gotta have I him know. on too. I don't know. I've actually never talked to him, but I'd want to have Austin on too at some point. Yeah, and, and I I know that uh he's connected somehow. My my cousin's husband um had a spinal cord injury uh last year and you know somehow they're connected, but it's uh you know it, it gets to a point where it's a you know it it does become a community but um for sure do you want me to try and set up an intro there or are you good you you like reach out whenever you feel like you have something to say uh, either either way um yeah. but like you know listening to that podcast it's interesting because even even with spinal cord injuries um there are diff- there are classifications within spinal cord injuries so someone someone with a um higher thoracic spine injury would not compete against someone with a lower thoracic spine injury because, you know, someone who's throwing and they have the ability to use their trunk to throw, uh, it's unfair, you know, to someone who is paralyzed, you know, at that point and can't use their trunk. And that so, makes total uh, sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so a lot of it, a lot of it is interesting and, you know, for all of the, um, you know, with, within the Paralympic community, 
Um, you know, it's still not perfect and there are a lot of things to iron out, but, um, you know, to their credit, there are a lot of health, um, you know, to compete at, at a national and international level, uh, you have to be licensed. You have to, uh, be screened by a doctor. Um, the doctors from the international Paralympic committee committee, the IPC, you have to set up an appointment and they, you know, you know, you'll sit in a room with them and then they test you, you know, to, to see how much range of motion you have, how much strength you have. Is it like basically to see if you're disabled enough? No, no, it really is because, um, (laughs) you know, and and, and it makes sense. It makes sense. You don't want anybody being like, like trying to like cut any corners there. No. And and that's what happens. And that, and that's exactly why they do it. And so, you know, there are, there have been cases where athletes have, um, um, not, not necessarily fake their injury, but they, they try to make their injury or not, if not even if they're, you know, have been injured, if, if they were born with something, if it was congenital, but they try to make it appear worse than it is. Yeah. So they, so they can have that competitive advantage and, that's, and that that's exists. their PED. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. Drug, right? yeah. 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 And so that, that exists, uh, you know, within the, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty ridiculous, it's, but I get it. It's unfortunate, it. but it, it's human nature. It does happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's human nature. And, and it's funny because like things like the United States, which has a phenomenal adaptive program for adaptive sports, um, you know, for the most part is not a state run organization. So everything is, is done by donation or everything is done by sponsorship. But like if you compete with a country you know, a South American country that's state sponsored. And if you're paid to train and if you, you know, are incentivized to train by, um, you know, we're going to pay you X amount of money. If you win a gold medal, you know, it incentivizes athletes to, uh, you know, cut any corners possible, but cut cut, cut corners because, you know, that's how they're making their money. Yeah, whatever advantages they can get, they'll take, I'm sure. Yeah, but, yeah so th- things like that exist for sure. I mean, anything Russia's involved with, you could probably guarantee they're trying to cut any corners as possible. <laughs> you don't have to say that, but I will. I've seen Icarus. <laughs> I know what it's like. That's um, right. <laughs> anyway, uh, so you actually haven't competed directly in the Paralympics, but you've been involved in coaching and stuff, it sounds like, right? Yeah, so I compete, I compete in um, national events. So like um, I've competed in the trials. Um, I've competed. And what do you in, do? Do you do powerlifting? I throw uh, discus, shot put, and javelin. That's what it was. I was. I was thinking is I've seen your lifting videos, but I now now that you mentioned, I'm, I definitely remember seeing you throw specifically discus. Yeah. Um, it's not easy stuff, man. Yeah. So, so. T- take us through this. So you've competed internet or nationally, but. What's it going to take? Are you still shooting for the Paralympics at some point? I'm, I still train. Uh, so I, I actually, I had it planned out from 2016 to last year. Um, I was on a pretty strict training schedule. So I was, I was, um, you know, training every day at five o'clock in the morning. Um, 
And then I I was doing that for four years. And then during during uh, COVID, where everything had shut down, um, I had started a new job and I was finishing up a master's program. And then, um, you know, my wife and I, we were in the middle of trying to figure out, you know, where we were going to end up. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, when I had planned it out in 2016, I had planned everything to, you know, financially and, you know, training wise, I planned everything to peak the fall of 2020. And so when uh, the Olympics and the Paralympics, when they had been postponed, um, you know, with, with my schedule and um, yeah. just how everything worked out, it, it kind of pushed things further back, um, you know, and I was kind of dealing with, you know, a few injuries, um, but, you know, that's, that's what happened, you know, this, this last Paralympic cycle. But uh, I mean, I'm still training. They have uh, they have international events every year that I can qualify for. They have uh, world tournaments. Um, I believe next year might be the um, uh, Pan Olympic, or I don't know what they call it, but you know, just uh, North America, South America mm. um, event that they have. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think Pan American. Pan American -American games. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so between now and, um, the next Paralympics, you know, between now and 2024, you know, they have events every year and they have things that I'll still, you know, stay in shape for and, and, uh, compete for, but, um, the focus and the commitment that I had, you know, from yeah, 2016 to 2020, it's my, you know, I, there are other things that I'm focusing on. Um, yeah, well, you know, between work and then, for the second time, right? Yeah, between that and, um, yeah, and getting into coaching as well. And, yeah. and um, that's, that's been, that's been different. Yeah, I bet. Well, good luck with all that, man. That's exciting. Um, yeah. You know, I don't meet. I've never met anybody that's well. That's not true, actually. I did have a bishop that did uh, cross country skiing for the Paralympics. Yeah, um, that'd be another one I could set you up with too. I haven't talked to him in a while, but he's been a close friend of mine for a long time. He's my favorite bishop I've ever had. Amazing story that he had. Um, but if you ever wanted to pick yeah. his brain on anything, let me know. Well, obviously. so Utah Utah has a great para skiing program. Um, mm. it used to be through the University of Utah, but I think they're standalone now based in Park City. Um, it, the name of it is slipping now, but, um, you know, what I have learned is that, you know, with the opportunity for adaptive sports is, um, is getting better. I mean, you CrossFit, you know, as an example, CrossFit has a, um, adaptive classification now. So you can, you, you can, I don't know if you're in CrossFit. I'm not in CrossFit. I don't know. I'm not judging CrossFit, but I've never talked about it. So I feel like that, that I automatically am disqualified, (laughs) but I mean, so things like, things like CrossFit, um, you know, wheelchair basketball, wheelchair, um, Mm -hmm. um, hockey or seated hockey, you know, there are opportunities for, um, you know, people, with um you know people with disabilities or with 
you know, these things to, to participate in. Um, but I think mostly it's just, you know, especially if you're, if you're new into it, whether you've been recently had a, a life changing injury or, you know, you're a mom or a dad of uh, a child who has a congenital, um, you know, has a congenital, um, disease, yeah. you know, that they see, you know, oh, my kid can't play junior jazz, but I would love to, you know, well, I'd love for them to, to be, you know, involved in something. And so, you know, that's where, um, you know, kind of the group that I'm involved with now, I work with a lot of kids. Um, but you see more and more of that. There, there are more and more groups that are becoming bigger. Um, they're trying to highlight um, kind of those things and, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's there have always been disabled people, right? Says, sure. uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, you know, yeah, it's, it's you know, really for cool. eons, right? But uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it's you know, it, I mean, it's something I just never thought of until I've was in the situation. And I'd like to think I could do. I would get into that as well. I mean, I think for for if anything else, it's it's amazing to see these people who effectively think their life is not over per se, but so fundamentally changed that it's like, I don't even know how I'm going to adapt or even if I want to adapt, so to speak. Now, granted, they don't have a choice in a lot of ways, but just in the sense of just staying positive and feeling like their life could ever be back to normal, something like the Paralympics and variations of that give so much hope to people in that situation. I mean, I can only imagine what was going through your head when they're telling you, guess what? I, you're not really, you may never actually walk again unassisted or, um, you're never really going to get to the back to normal when it comes to just walking. And I'm sure you're thinking like, well, that changes a lot of what my life goals were, but then here you are in some ways you've made new goals, but in other ways, some of your old goals are still the same, just yeah. with a minor tweak here and there on it. And I think that's such a healthy way of dealing with that type of stress with that type of paradigm shift in somebody's life. And clearly you've been somebody that's not only, not only survived, but in some senses thrived, right? In that regard. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, I think Jill had mentioned it when she was on, you know, there's a sense of identity loss, especially it happens with males, you know, for me, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, being, um, um, Polynesian, you know, I'm, you know, about six, three, just south of 300 pounds, yeah. you know, my, my body, what I could do, how much I could lift, how fast I could run, you know, that was my identity. Um, you know, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's just always been my, my identity. It, it's who I am. Yeah. And so, you know, you get to a point where you lose all of that and you're kind of lost. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really difficult, really difficult thing to, to figure out and to reconcile and, um, you know, being, another group that I'm involved with, you know, working with um, combat vets who come home, you know, who might be injured, you know, once all of the flag waving and the celebration is done and died down and, you know, they're at home in the dark playing video games, you know, drinking, you know, kind of isolating, you know, their entire identity is, you know, especially these guys who join at, 17 enlist at 17 18 years old you know when they go through something and they have 
you know, their identity as a soldier is basically stripped from them. You yeah. know, it's it's a really really dark place. It, yeah, I mean, wait, were you saying that in comparison to like like not even wounded vets, just like vets in general? Because that's I, I, I mean, I think it's I think I think it's both. It's twofold, yeah. Because that's what I was yeah, thinking as you were twofold. saying that. I'm like, even if even for the guys that are uninjured that come home and like don't have anything, like there's fanfare when they get back, but then there's just like this sense of now yeah. what? Now well, no, and, and I think. Yeah, no, that that identity uh, crisis, uh, you know, whatever it is. No, I it's, you know, it's definitely not something that you only see with uh, no traumatic injuries or or uh, war vets. Yeah, war no, it vets. happens to anybody. I any mean, you yeah. see it, you see it, uh, you know, the guys who try to relive the glory days in high school, you know, yeah. high school sports yeah. where their identity is Uncle that. Rico's man. Yeah. Yeah, or or uh, missionaries who come home and they're completely lost because their identity, you know, was elder so and so, and you know they just attach them. People attach themselves too much to, you know, those things. And that's a really good point. I'm actually glad you're saying that. Like, we all get a little bit uptight about how people, how not only we perceive ourselves, but how others perceive us, and. Yeah that can become problematic. Like for missionaries, exactly that too. I remember coming back and I never even really like, I'll be honest. I think everybody that would know this would, or sorry, I'd say everybody that knows me wouldn't be surprised to hear this, but I was not wrapped up in this identity that like, Oh, you are a missionary. This is everything. I loved it. I did like being a missionary and I, I feel like objectively speaking, I was pretty solid missionary, but I wasn't one of those. That's like by the book, like we do everything exactly right. Like it's, I remember talking about that with some of my other mission buddies, which like all my favorite missionaries, like my, my companions are all my favorite, like mission buddies were all by the book guys. And I think it's because I saw the balance in them because I wasn't a by the book. I was more of a spirit of the law guy. And we actually talked about it. And a lot of them have told me since they're like, I always kind of appreciated how you were a little loose on the mission. Not that I was a bad missionary by any means, but just like, didn't take things that seriously. One of them, one of them commented how he was so, he was, he loved the fact, like he, one of his favorite memories is that like in a district meeting one time, like we were all kind of like getting pumped and like, we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, just like what we were going to do to like contact people. Cause we were in a tough area. And I just said out of the blue, like near the end of it, I was like, let's go baptize the hell out of them. And like, it just started cracking a bunch of like the white elders up. Cause they're just like, that's out of left field. You don't really see missionaries say stuff like that. Yeah, That yeah. was kind of the idea behind that. Where it's like, I wasn't too wrapped up in that, but that was way too much of a tangent to say what I'm about to say. Even from that less than a year I got after I got back from my mission, I remember being at BYU and just being like, man, life's hard. Like it's hard moving on. It's hard. Like just embracing this new path and from being successful in the mission to now this. And I'm like, I feel like I'm just, just a lemming just doing what everybody else is doing. And it's tough. And so I get what you're saying where it's like, well, how do we find that deeper meaning? Um, that is also evolving and how do we yeah. evolve with it? And, 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 and it, I think it's, it's a trap for sure. I mean, and it's cyclical, right? You know, you tie your identity to uh, being a missionary, you tie your identity to uh, being uh, intramural champs at BYU, <laughs> yeah, you, tie, yeah, you right. tie your identity to whatever you do for work, you know? Um, so true. You know, the, you tie your identity to be, uh, to being a, you know, BYU Cougar. You, and then, you know, when you tie your identity to those things that don't mean anything, you know, you create an ego 
you, you, you very volatile, you allow, right? Yeah, it's very Fragile. volatile, and like you can get hurt about those things that you set up that you know don't matter. It, it, it mm-hmm. just doesn't. Things that just, yeah. just yeah. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. You tie your identity to losing to Utah nine years straight or nine times straight. Yeah. yeah, that's tough, man. It becomes tough being a BYU fan. But anyway, that's I actually love that the direction this discussion took because I wasn't really expecting that, but it's so true. And I think that's why it's all the more important to tie it to something that's so meaningful and so, you know, so, on such a higher level, which is why I'm a big believer in the gospel, right? In, or in a higher power. Like if people want to believe in their form of a higher power and tether themselves to that, I think it just provides a lot more of a deeper perspective on life and helps you kind of adapt as you, as you keep rolling with things and whatever life throws at you. Couldn't agree yeah. more, man. As we kind of wrap things up though, we were talking a little bit before we started the podcast, you were talking about how, how you think it's funny, kind of almost like you're sitting on the sidelines and you, and you watch things from afar and how you're like, the only reason why you're on Twitter is to kind of see like, to kind of gauge the temperature of Utah and kind of what the, what people are talking about back home. I mean, you're a military brat, right? I don't know, yeah. is brat appropriate? Can I still say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a um, term of endearment. I don't think any military right. brat will feel yeah. bad about uh, being called military brat. Good to know, man. Um, I remember that and because uh, I remember you were from Dugway at the time when I mm-hmm. met you. And I was like, what's a Dugway? <laughs> I had like, the, never the heard bo- of the place. Bo- booming metropolis of Dugway. That's right. <laughs> booming metropolis. Yeah, so... Um, you kind of grew up all around, but like you're Utah, like you got a lot of family in Utah. So Utah's kind of home to you and you like kind of seeing what's, what's being spoken of. And you said something that I loved kind of before we started recording, which was a lot of people probably take themselves too seriously. And that's really what you see kind of happen on like unfolding on things like Twitter or whatever else. And it's just like, we can all probably tone it down a little bit and kind of try and find more common ground. I don't know. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, there are um on social media there there are a few handles that I follow that um they they can they can say some pretty interesting things but when I am on Facebook and I see, you know, someone um expressing uh displeasure with, you know, something that's said or something that's shared or you know, just the the general feel of you know, what might be going on in Utah, I'll log on to Twitter and I'll get an idea of, you know, where is this coming from? You know, and so on Twitter, it's easy to see, you know, the the polar opposites of both sides. You can see, you know, people who are, you know, 100% against something that was said or 100% for. And, you know, it gives me a better idea of, okay, this, that's why my, you know, this person who I've known for 20 years, that's why they're kind of feeling this way. Um, but yeah, in, in the, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's funny because, you know, because I have to look it up and because I, I don't understand it and, and being, you know, being a member of the church and, and especially when it's gospel related and I'm like, Oh, is this, you know, is this, is this uh thing as big as it is and i'll look into it and you know for the most part it's yeah for the most part it's uh mountains made out of molehills yeah that's a great way yeah that's a great saying and it fits perfectly um with what we're kind of dealing with right now and i'll be honest i'm i'm 
I I get caught up in it, man. I get yeah. I get a little bit like too passionate about things sometimes, and I have to remind myself that it's like, what's this all about? You know, is this about dying on a hill or trying to help bring others to your understanding, or vice versa? You know, I mean, it's it's hard to say. It's really hard to say because, like I said, there's that threshold kind of of the gospel where it's like, at, at what point am I comfortable with this being? the fundamental tenets of the gospel that should never change and fighting for those or standing up for them versus what do I think can maybe be better or we can adapt to. And you brought up the point of like how in Polynesian culture, there's tattoos, there's, there's drinking kava, which you had explained to me is probably not exactly in line with the word of wisdom, but it's not so much about that as it is. Well, you said it was a muscle relaxer. Actually, it probably could be totally in line with the, word of wisdom for all I know, but um, the kava drinking got condemned, but you were saying it was more about kind of the community around it, how people would be maybe not so in tune with what was going on with their families or whatever else may have been precluding them from just trying to be better people in general. Um, And kind of the kava drink was, was one of those things that might be an obstruction to that, right? And I think your overall point is correct in the fact that if whatever we do, if it if it prohibits us from being better, from being there for our communities, for our families, then it's probably not a good thing. And that's ultimately what the prophets talk about more than anything. You talked about how um, tattoos in the Polynesian culture are very accepted, but yet we have a talk by President Hinckley back in the early 2000s when he said we shouldn't get tattoos and women shouldn't have more than one piercing. But I'll be the first to say I've wanted a tattoo for a while. I do not think having a tattoo is at all a display of you, like who you are as a person. Now, I mean, do I want to go against what President Hinckley suggests? Of course not. But does the Polynesian culture want to go against what President Hinckley suggests? Of course not. But it's more of like this cultural component that's at play here. It's like there's so many different things that uh that how people identify as members of the church and what's important to them and what's not and is and if you get a tattoo is that going to keep you out of the celestial kingdom i i would be the first to say that i do not think that's the case yeah and i think it's like like you said that it's the principle of what was said and why it was said i mean more, more recently you know with the example of drinking kava um you know doesn't land with some people uh video games right you yeah, know, I would people, agree. People, totally people agree. have come out and said, you know, stop playing video games. And it's, you know, essentially there isn't anything wrong with playing video games, but there's something wrong if you're is so enveloped in playing video games that it's keeping you from doing other things like being with your family. Or if the person that you turn into when playing video games doesn't align with, uh, yeah, I'm not the, you know, I'm not the best person when I'm in, you know, when I'm in the zone and, you know, I, I don't play as much as I used to anymore, but, you know, there isn't anything inherently wrong with doing the activity, but if, you know, it becomes a, you know, something a that draws a, a roadblock to progression. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more, man. And then you have things like Elder Holland's talk where I'm coming in hot talking about how I didn't think there was anything wrong with what he said and all this stuff. Yeah. And, no, so I, I've listened. I've listened to a, a lot of your episodes, but uh, no, it, you need to leave the TikTok missionaries alone. 
Nah, dude. That is a hill I'm dying you, on, dude. You, that you is said, a mountain. That's not a mole. Brought, that is a mountain. Yeah, you've, you've brought some things on, and you know I, I love what your mom has shared, but I'm like, man, Harper needs to leave those TikTok missionaries alone, man. No, make a case for him, man. I'm all ears, actually. I'll let you go. I, I'll, I'll let you talk about this. I want to hear, like, it, it, honestly, I find it, okay, let me go first. So that way I'll, I'll give you the last word because <laughs> I, I'll, I'll admit it's not a hill worth dying on. I'll be the first to admit that. But I, it's kind of the old man get off my lawn curmudgeon yeah. in me that's like, what the hell are these guys doing? Like, it seems like so useless. And furthermore, I can't imagine that church policy is like, oh, this is totally cool. Cause I, I just, I don't know. I think there's all sorts of shenanigans going on behind this, behind the scenes. I was actually just talking to a friend today who shared a couple, like I, now I get TikToks shared with me all the time from missionaries. It's kind of funny, but um, one of them was saying how it's kind of interesting to see how in with the trends, these missionaries are like, you have to be like really going through some videos to see. And he even said, he's like, some of them are like borderline pornographic. So like, I'm kind of curious, like what the, how the monitoring is there. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great point. Now, with that said, obviously the purpose is to bring people to Christ and bring people to the church. How much of that purpose is achieved through TikTok? I'm not sure the ratio lines up well with like trying to find contacts through members of the church versus trying to find contacts through TikTok and the effort that goes into each of those. Far be it from me to know for sure what those numbers are, but that's essentially where I land is that I don't think it's necessarily the best use of their time. Yeah, but maybe maybe these missionaries getting on TikTok is just the push members like you need to go out and do more missionary work. <laughs> maybe the church maybe is so, like, maybe, so. <laughs> maybe the church is. I I so I think they're cringy. Uh, okay. You know, I I can't I can't watch a full video. At the same I, time, we're on the same page there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not for me for sure. And you know, I. If my kids decide to serve missions, I mean, I hope they're not doing anything like that too. But I mean, regardless of that, you know, um, I mean, if it's, if, if they're kind of doing the best that they can, and I think if it's done, I don't want to say that there's like a, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have a good word for it, like a spirit of innocence, but if the desire is there for them to spread that message or spread joy, especially, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to get in front of people these days. You know, even in two thousand six and two thousand eight. You know, when I served in Manhattan, seeing people face to face. You know, all we could do is street contact, right? You know, yeah. if if yeah. there was a better way to reach people, I mean, I would. I I can't say that I wouldn't have been on TikTok. <laughs> <trying> to... <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair As I try to get to people, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not my flavor, but I mean, I think there's a place for it. And I think that place is to push people like us to go out and do better member missionary work, probably. It could be. That's one way of looking at it. I'll just say this, though, as I, as I sign off on this topic. I don't think, you know, Polynesians or any members of the church, for that matter, that get tattoos are going to, like, I don't think that's going to keep them out of the celestial kingdom. But if you're a TikTok missionary you're going to hell Just... <laughs> uh no obviously i'm joking but well general, um, general conference general conference this week this weekend maybe they'll announce something like that that's right man oh seriously i would love nothing more i'm excited man general conference is gonna i've 
I feel like it's going to be interesting every time, and I'm always a little bit let down, so I should probably just keep yeah. my expectations in check there. But especially, um, especially, you just spent some time explaining how you were a spirit of the law missionary, and you yeah. went by the book. <laughs> I know. And now you're just you're yeah. trashing these missionaries that are. Yeah. Yeah. I look back at it. I'm like, gosh, dang it, you little you little freaking punks. Get to get back to work. Look at the white handbook, would you? Dude, for real. Yeah. Um, all right. Tell me real quick as we kind of sign off here. I got to know what what is Ira Glass like in real person or real life? Sorry. Oh, I uh, it was uh, his correspondent who uh, followed us for I don't even remember her name. Oh, so you didn't actually talk with him. Yeah. Yeah. So he had, I can't remember a few people following different groups. Mm. Yeah. Gotcha. Did you get to, did you get to meet any of those NPR people besides the ones that just followed you around besides the interns that they had basically? Well, I'm, I'm, I can't remember the, the girl's name, but that's the only one that I met. And I mean, you know, we didn't listen to anything on our mission. So I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I had no, I still idea. don't, I had no <laughs> idea who she was. I just know I got a call from, uh, the church's PR office that was like, Hey, you know, they want to do a story and, uh, you're a Brown missionary in Manhattan. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I was thinking that I was like, did I, they say just, that, did they... I say that half joking, but if you Google, see all the New York times, you'll see a picture of me as a missionary. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that, man. They yeah, know exactly yeah. what they're doing. Don't they? I know. If you yeah. hey, if you had been serving in South Manhattan, at, South Manhattan at the time, they would have been like, "Hey, the Hispanic elder, Elder Anderson, let's... the blue-eyed kid that looks white, the blue-eyed kid, sort of the, light hair. the Mexican kid. Yeah. He's about as ethnic as we got these days." <laughs> <laughs> oh man, dude! Thanks so much for coming on. Seriously, I love catching up with you. Uh, like, it sounds like things are going great for the most part. Keep me in the loop with everything. Obviously, we're cheering for you with the Paralympic, whatever comes in store. If it, that just means you're going to be kind of sticking to coaching and whatever else, then best of luck. And more importantly, congrats on the second child coming anytime now. Thank you. Uh, and I'm always, I'm always recruiting. I'm always uh, recruiting for Team Texas. So if you want to move back to Texas, hey, I don't, I don't know I why people are aren't aren't over here, but. Man, I don't know either. Texas on is honestly like the people out in Texas are amazing. I love them. I, I love the people in Texas. That's what makes that state so great. But Lubbock, mm, I mean Lubbock people are awesome. Yeah, Lubbock, Lubbock people are yeah. awesome. Lubbock is kind of. Have you been out there? West Texas is rough. It's rough, man. It's rough. It's ugly. It's yeah. like another planet. Yeah. And flat. Oof, so flat. You like yeah. legit. You think you're on the moon or Mars or something. It's nuts. Yeah, it's eerie for sure. Yeah, no question. But people are great. They love each, they love each other. They love they love all new people that come in there. So yeah. well, best of luck out there, brother. If I ever make it out there, I'll have to hit you up, all right? Oh, for sure. All right, my man. Take it easy. Great right, catching up with you. Oh, love, I remember falling so madly. There must have been magic in the valley. And a rhythm in the night Cause I could almost see it Did you fade right out of you? If it takes time, I, I If it takes time, I